Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to Episode 72 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for another discussion and conversation. Our motto is, Unity Begins with a Cup of Coffee. It's relational in nature, and we're having conversations across the streams of the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, and we've got another great conversation in store today. I want to say something, though, about my co-host, Tina Bruner. Uh, She is uh, away today because she is in Poland and has been doing some work just sitting with and praying with and serving Ukrainian refugees. And she's been uh, with some folks that have had to evacuate Afghanistan. So uh, Tina's work internationally is quite quite amazing what she does. Keep her in your prayers, although this will be uh, broadcasting a couple of weeks after. So uh, our best to Tina. We'll look forward to having her back. We have Marty Solomon with us today. And we're in a series based in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Uh, We've been having conversations about uh, deconstructing and then rebuilding, uh, building back in a better way, uh, so to say. I don't mean to steal a political term there or to get political, but uh, we think that's a healthy thing to do at times in our faith. Marty Solomon uh, many of you might know because you may listen to his podcast. If you if you don't, you'll want to start. He uh, heads up the Bema Discipleship Podcast, and they've had about seven uh, seasons of that. In addition to his work with the podcast, he is the president of Impact Campus Ministries. He's a teacher and author. Um, but as I mentioned, most know him as the host of uh, the Bama podcast. It has a large body of listeners, hundreds of discussion groups across the globe, and Marty is the teacher on that podcast. He was uh, called into ministry at a time when he enrolled at Boise Bible College, which is an independent Christian church college in Boise, Idaho. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Ministries there. Uh, Marty has a passion for teaching others how to ask better questions, pointing them toward experts who can help them grow and develop as followers of Jesus. And whether he's preaching on Sunday morning or leading study tours to Israel and Turkey or teaching at a weekend seminar uh, or producing many of his digital resources or championing the cause of campus ministry, he loves to use his creativity to inspire others with the truth of God's love for the world by introducing them to better readings of our Bible. So, Marty, welcome. So glad to have you with us. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about your story and your journey and open things up for us that way, if you will. Sure. That introduction was more than kind. I 
was awkward listening to so many beautiful things about myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in the evangelical church my whole life. There was never a stage where I wasn't deeply involved. I grew up actually in the Reformed tradition. I grew up in a Dutch Reformed church. Um, the 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 two jokes I always tell is that growing up in the Reformed tradition, we believed in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Um, <laughs> never talked about the Holy Spirit a whole lot. My mom, the other the other joke I tell is that Dr. James Dobson was the fourth member of that Trinity, um, <laughs> deeply committed to focus on the family. Uh, all of, I mean, that was just my upbringing. I, I grew up going to Sunday school, never missing a beat, having all the answers, went to Bible college. Um, and uh, I, I think I had my, uh, my deconstruction period. And believe it or not, we were actually calling it back, back calling it such back then. Um, wasn't quite the buzzword it is today, but uh, I was, I was pastoring a church. I had a, um, a member of a youth group was an atheist kid. And, um, and he was perfect attendance, never missed, loved the community and loved to pick fights. And he was my project. I was going to get this kid saved. And, uh, and we had all these wonderful conversations. We would go out every Thursday morning and we would debate the book of Genesis. And at that point I was seven day literal creationist. I was five point hyper Calvinist. I was, I was all in. And, um, and, and we would debate Darwinism versus uh, creationism. And he came from a broken family. And, uh, and he, he was the one that found his father committed suicide one day. And he found his father. I showed up about 20 minutes after the cops had left. He didn't say anything to me. We jumped in, he jumped in the car. We went out and argued about the Tower of Babel that morning. I found out two days later about his father. And that sent me into this weird, wacky tailspin because my evangelical theology uh, actually explained that. It had all the answers for me. And in that moment, I didn't want to have all the answers, actually, um, because what we were dealing with was bigger than any theology. It was bigger than uh, I just didn't have any compartments to put it in. And that sent me on a journey, uh, which was a tailspin because I didn't have the tools. And luckily, God... God led me to some great mentors and some great teachers that started inviting me to read the Bible in a, a better way, a new way. One of them was Ray Vanderlaan. I got to go over to Israel and Turkey and yeah, it just blew up, it blew up my world in a beautiful way. And it gave me a new hermeneutic, a new way of reading the Bible objectively, historically, in an, in, in an informed way. And I longed to pass that on to other people. And so I came back and that was be the beginning of what would become Bema. I didn't know that back then. I just was starting to form this body of work. I wanted to I wanted to do it with people that could say yes to a, a, a call to discipleship. And I kept having all these people that said, well, I got three kids and a mortgage and a marriage and a career. And I was so frustrated. And I said, I, I, I want to find people that can say yes. And they need to be adults because they need to be able to make their own decision, but they need to not have mortgages and marriages and three children and careers. And it dawned on me that college students and campus ministry was where I could go experiment with that. And I've been doing that ever since. So started that in 2010. Um, out of that, the body of work kind of became a class, which then became a podcast. And the rest is, as they say, history. So somewhere in there, I also learned all about my own Jewish heritage. I, I knew about that. I wasn't raised in it but just kind of continually tried to align my, I tried to align my life practice, my orthopraxy 
to the best of my ability with what I believe the Bible is trying to teach us. And so that's been, that's the, probably the weirdest summary I've ever given of my story, but there you go. It might've been the shortest too. So you're welcome. How did a, a Dutch reformed Calvinist <laughs> find themselves at Boise Bible College? How, how, how did you make that connection? Well, the joke back then was it was predestined. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> had no choice. I, <laughs> it, it really was a work of God. I mean, I, I went to a bunch of reformed schools. They made sense um, when I felt the call into the ministry. And um, yeah, I went to Dort College looking at that. I, I had toured a bunch of schools and universities. And then one of the schools I went to is this, I didn't know anything about the Stone Campbell movement. I, I didn't know anything about restoration movement. I just went to visit this Bible college because they were close and they invited me to come. And the whole, I mean, I, I pulled in and I remember my mom saying, do you just want to go home? Because it was like three buildings, two of them run down. It was on, I don't even know, a handful of acres. Like there was nothing there. And it was <laughs> not a university like we had been looking at. And, and, uh, and she said, and I said, well, the lady giving us a tour is sitting in the van right there. So we should probably at least get out and do the tour. It'd be awkward if we just left. And the whole time we we went on that tour, I just had this overwhelming, I don't have a long list of those, you know, Jesus hocus pocus stories, but that's one of them. I just knew, overwhelmingly knew that this is where I was supposed to be. And I spent two years being the, just a punk jerk reformed kid. And went through that kind of moment I talked about earlier, about halfway through my time at Bible college. And, and yeah, that I was always kind of the, I was the weird Calvinist kid that everybody knew. And, and then God, yeah, it ended up being this beautiful place that I found a new place to belong and a job and a church and a ministry. And it's been my home largely ever since. And I, I love, love the ideals of the restoration movement. Um, we probably execute those ideals very poorly most of the time, but boy, do I love what our movement is trying to do and become. It's beautiful. They're great ideals, and they give us good direction. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about the the Bama podcast, um, how it came about. Uh, here you have all these folks that are listening as you're uh, blessing them by helping them to read the Bible better and understand the biblical narrative. What? led you to get that started and and from that point yeah you've gone through seven seasons Uh, what keeps it going what keeps your heart in it yeah so uh we it started uh, i was doing campus ministry in a place called the palouse which is a region right on the border of uh eastern washington and northern idaho i was at university of idaho and washington state university and i had this growing campus ministry and and students were coming to this class about twice a week on campus and it was basically the podcast. It was just in a in a classroom. We were just teaching it in person. And then Impact asked me if I would serve as president when my mentor resigned. And um, and so I said yes to that. And that meant I was on the road too much to do a class on campus. And I said, let's, we weren't trying to start a podcast. We weren't trying to be ingenious or clever. I just said, let's put this online so that at least the students have their content every single week. And then when I'm in town, I can meet and we can do a discussion group. Um, and so we moved it online and podcasting was just the right medium. We weren't trying to start a public podcast. And we did that for about, golly, it was just over a year and a half, almost two years. And then all of a sudden, more and more people started listening. And then somebody from the ICOC picked it up. And the rep, man, I'll tell you what, I can tell, I can show you on the graph the day that that happened. And, and all of a sudden, it just continued to snowball. 
And we've just been trying to steward whatever it is that God's doing with that ever since. So yeah, it was designed, which is why when you listen to season one, you get the sense that there's like this, this campus ministry and these students and a discussion group we're having. And then if you listen to it today, <laughs> it's a totally different animal, but that's, um, that's how it started and, and what it was and what it became. And I'm just thrilled that it's worked for so many people beyond what it was designed for. And that's, that's, that's great. Well, give us a little bit of a brief overview of some of the the major themes. If somebody's out there and they're listening to this and saying, hey, I, I, I want to check this out. You, you deal with themes like trusting the story, wrestling with the text, empire and shalom. Um, talk about some of the overarching themes that you touch on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's basically a deconstruction of how we read the Bible. It goes through the entire scriptures, uh, in, in four sessions and then does a quick session five. Season five is basically a quick little jaunt through church history, kind of talking about how we got here. So the main body of work is in those first five seasons, those first five sessions. And first one's Torah. And then we spend season two going through the writings and the prophets. And season three is the gospel. Season four is the rest of the New Testament. And then Season five is church history, and we're basically just trying to teach people how to think through a, how to read the Bible through a historically informed, a historical contextual Jewish hermeneutic. How do we read the Bible through the the lens of the original conversation taking place between these Jewish authors and their largely Jewish audiences? And that's what we do. So we do, we have some themes throughout our teaching. Uh, trusting the story is where it all begins, like Episode one for us is, I mean, it's the foundation that we always call people back to. It's Genesis one. It's where God starts a story. And God seems to start his story with this affirmation that creation is good, that it's loved, that everything that it needs is right there. It's inherently the inherent goodness of his creation, us included. And that kind of, that story caps off with this idea of Sabbath and not just the practice and obedience of Sabbath. But what Sabbath is, like what its function is, it's designed to remind us of that truth. It's designed to remind us of, it's a truth-telling day. It's a day that tells us the truth. And so we talk about trusting the story and what that means to us is trust that God, trust that you are beloved, trust that you're accepted, trust that you're valued, start theology there. Because when I don't believe I'm loved, when I don't believe I'm enough, when I operate out of fear and insecurity, I'm going to do a whole bunch of really dumb things. And so good theology, good psychology, good everything begins with an awareness and a knowledge of this gospel truth that God loves me. And um, and then, yeah, we have other themes. We talk about wrestling with the text all the time. Like the text is meant to be wrestled with. It is not an answer book. It's not a moral code. It is the story of, it's this library of the stories of God's people. And they're being told, and it's it's mysterious, and it's powerful, and it doesn't come back void. It's not a textbook. It's not a history book. It's not a lab report. It is the inspired Word of God, and it is meant to be grappled with, and the Spirit of God works through it. Um, so, so it has to be engaged, not just studied. And we have to get it in us, not just know about it. Um, we talk about empire and shalom. Uh, which is the way that we frame the narrative of God. We believe the narrative of God is always juxtaposing uh, a, a narrative that says there's not enough, a narrative that says that feeds this idea of self-preservation that operates out of fear and a certain kind of power. Um, it's a, it's a power that funnels to the top. 
It's a power that we talk about the stick of Pharaoh. We run into this very early in the story with the story of the Exodus. And then you have Shalom, and Shalom's the opposite. Shalom is an invitation to wholeness. Shalom isn't coercion, it's invitation. Shalom isn't stick, it's voice. Shalom isn't um, isn't fear, it's trust. And so we're always juxtaposing what is what is God's wholeness, what is God's kingdom, what does God's shalom look like versus what does it look like when we're trying to build our kingdoms, which is almost always rooted in fear and insecurity. And yeah, so we, we have all kinds of fun little uh, phrases and things that we like to help inform us. And it's weird when you meet somebody who's listened. It's like we have our own little language, hopefully not in a cultic way, but we have formed this <laughs> long conversation where we use these terms and everybody goes, oh, you listen to Bema. Okay, I get that. <laughs> and, and hopefully it's a good thing that God uses and uh, it's fun. Marty, you, you mentioned a couple of moments ago how Ray Vanderlyn and his teaching series kind of opened your eyes to a new way of reading scripture. And then you you mentioned getting in touch with your own Jewish roots and heritage. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you will, and how that led you to read the Bible differently. Yeah. And actually, yeah. So I, I was aware of my Jewish heritage. Um, my father came from a very, very, very strict uh, LDS Mormon background. And because of that, we had our family genealogy, uh, our genealogical records, and took us back to 936 A.D., Wow. So I knew of our, our knew of our heritage. We had been in Cornwall, England, for about eight hundred years. So didn't even change addresses, um, and uh, and just I, I was aware, but I had been raised in an evangelicalism that basically said Jesus came. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish. I mean, that's pretty standard assumption and understanding. And then I, I yeah, I was learning from Ray and some other teachers, but Ray was the one that really walked me through what I would end up becoming like I would, what I would end up knowing was new perspective on Paul uh, and a whole new wave of scholarship of the last 30, 40 years based on some of the things we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that says, hey, maybe we've been making some really bad assumptions about what the New Testament is saying about Judaism and how these apostles engage their their Jewishness and what's going on there. So I, I actually learned all that first. Um, I knew of my Jewish heritage, but was not identifying as a Jew at all. Um, it was my last trip with Ray, and the funny part of the story, I had grown my beard out for no reason. I was just being stupid. My wife told me to grow my beard out, and when your wife tells you to grow out your beard, you don't ask twice. <laughs> you just do it and take the chance. There's a beard. smart man right there. <laughs> Very wise. So I had grown my beard out. I walked around the corner of the airport, and Ray Vanderlaan turned around and looked at me, and he went, oh my goodness, I'm so stupid, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say to somebody. And he grabbed my name tag and he said, has your name always been spelled that way? And I said, yeah, since 936 AD, Cornwall, England. He said, oh, that name has never come out of Western Europe and not been Jewish. I'm like, okay, well, I, I kind of know that. Like I know of my Jewish heritage. And for the first few days of the trip, whenever Ray would talk about Jews, he would point at me from across the group or he would put his hand on my shoulder. Like if you were to talk to a Jew today, and I'm like, what are you doing? I, could, I could don't get this. And then somebody in the group, we were four or five days in on the trip, somebody in the group called me their semi-Jewish friend. And Ray went bananas. He, he called everybody over and he said, I don't want to hear anybody ever call him that ever again. Like, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew and there's nothing you can do about it. If you're not a Jew, you're not a Jew and there's nothing you can do about it. And I knew that theologically. I had just never reflected on its connection to my own story. And... So yeah, the rest of that trip, Ray and I talked and Ray was more than gracious. Ray said, listen, in Jesus, I think you have all the freedom in the world 
to do whatever you want to do. I just know what you teach. And one day you're going to have a student that says, if that's what you believe, why don't you eat kosher? And you just need to know what you're going to tell them. And so I went home and I had a really awkward conversation with my wife and we prayed about it for the next year. And we decided that we, yeah, we wanted to live in a way that was consistent with what we understood. And so we, we did, we reclaimed that Jewish heritage. <clears throat> we started uh, living Torah observant um, in a way that aligns with what we teach that you can hear in the podcast uh, if you want to deep dive. And, um, and that, yeah, that was how, and so now, but the beauty of it is, is that that wasn't what informed my teaching. It wasn't what came, like I didn't come out of like my own, I came out of learning about it objectively and then kind of aligned my story to the content of the things that I was teaching. So yeah, it's been a weird relationship, but that, that was the thing. I didn't realize it at the time, but that Jewish lens was the set of questions that I was finding so helpful because the questions that evangelicalism had taught me to ask were great, but they weren't getting the job done. And when I, when I looked at the conversation in scripture through the original lens that they were having it through, it just seemed to open up with all kinds of color. And that's what was so helpful. How did you develop this connection to Ray Vanderlood? Because I, you know, so many of our listeners, I'm sure like me, that they watched that series that he put together that the world may know. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that relationship. He's a great teacher and and what a great opportunity. Well, he doesn't answer my emails to this very day. So (laughs) (laughs) don't feel bad. I got lucky. Um, Again, it was God. It was just God's provision. I grew up in a church. My home church was one of eight churches, what what Ray will call his Shafela churches. And there are churches that Ray feels like these churches get it in a special way. And I'm going to have a special relationship. He's going to come every other year and and do a little weekend seminar. He's going to take their people on trips. And that's how I got to know him. I I went back to my home church to work for about four years. And during that four years, as Ray came into town, he said, they said, you got to go be his chauffeur for the weekend and get to know him and go to Israel and Turkey. And yeah, all the doors just kind of flopped open in front of me. And I just walked through them as they did. And, and yeah, I just had a special, unique opportunity, and Ray was more than gracious and was an amazing teacher. And my relationship with Ray was not nearly as close as I think sometimes people assume when they hear it. I, I just got to go learn. I got to go be in the room with him. And sure. I was not one of his disciples, um, and, but but he, boy, he, he did more than he realizes. I, I listened to his recordings. I probably listened to him 100 or 200 times uh, yeah. from my time with him, just over and over, just picking up little bits and pieces and who to study and where to read. And he was one that gave me his bibliography and told me which experts and which scholars and why. And I'm indebted to him for, for so much of, of everything. So, yeah, I think we all are to a degree. Those of us that listened to his series just opened our eyes to a whole new reading of scripture. Well, we're in this series on our podcast uh, that we've titled a time to tear down and a time to build and as I mentioned in the introduction, we, we kind of ground that in Ecclesiastes 3.3. Talk to us a little bit about interpreting the Bible well. What are some of the things that you would suggest that we need to let go of? And how might we interpret Scripture in a way that is more true to what God intends as you uh, see it and understand it? Yeah, um, two things come to mind in that question. One of them is, and I think this is the most important, I'm not sure how we do this. I just know it's an important thing that we we navigate. 
we have to somehow as Western uh, educated Christians, we have to recognize that we have put our doctrine as a filter in between us and scripture. We read the scripture through the lens of a, of a predetermined doctrine, which means scripture is actually not the authority that's informing us. We are checking our reading against a pre-held doctrine. So to truly be able to go to the scripture, and I mean, that's what's so healthy about the deconstruction we're talking about today, is we're questioning those filters. And we should be able to, because those filters are not what's inspired. The word of God is what's inspired. And so we got to be able to like take down, one of our teachers has called it scaffolding. Like we got to take the scaffolding down that we've erected around the thing that matters. And we'll need scaffolding. Like scaffolding will be essential. We'll need doctrine. We'll need good dogma. We'll need all that stuff. But we need to be able to like take it down, put it back up. Like we need to remember how to put it in its proper place. So that that's one thing. Um, the other thing is just hermeneutical principles. I just wrapped up writing my first book. It should be out in February, um, titled Asking Better Questions of the Bible. And my closing chapter, uh, I talk about a toolbox. And I talk about, you know, during the course of reading this book, you've probably picked up a whole bunch of new tools, tools you're not really familiar with. You don't really know how to use it, use them yet, but your toolbox is super heavy. And it's because you still have some of the old tools. And some of those tools you'll want to keep. And some of them you'll want to get rid of. And um, whether that's just certain exegetical practices we have or maybe certain paradigms. And I hate to identify what they are because that's the work of Jesus. So I don't get to decide what those tools are we get rid of. But there will be tools. There will be paradigms. There will be theologies. There will be traditions, denominational, non-denominational. There will be practices that we'll want to ask some questions about. And some of those things will want to go away. Uh, in order to have a better reading of the Bible. But I think Ecclesiastes well informs us with wisdom. I think there's always a time to to do that. At that time's not unique to this era. It's not unique to 2022. It's it's always something that we're, every generation is called to ask those questions, to tear down, and there's always a time to build too. And both of those are important. Talk to us a little bit about cultural influences and how they shape the way we interpret scriptures. What are, what are some of the things you see in our current culture uh, that influences maybe the way we understand and read God's Word and perhaps get in the way uh, of a true understanding of, of what God's intent is? Yeah, this is a tricky question for me to not get in trouble. Because um, we do, we have, a, we have a ton of idolatry that gets in our, our we have a lot of socio-political idolatries on both sides of the equation. Um, that serve as another one of those filters. We have all these filters that we put in front of the way we read the Bible. Some of them are our systematic theologies and the things we've been taught to understand doctrinally. Some of them are our political ideologies our ideologies and the things that we uh, believe in and adhere to. And so that culture is, and, and I think I've been going on my own journey in this and growing and evolving myself because I, I think I went through a a stage where I just completely rejected all of those things. So what I saw was this pre-conventional what I always, there's this pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional wisdom that some of my teachers will talk about. And I was familiar with a pre-conventional evangelicalism that was, they're all wrapped up in their politics and their political agendas. And so then I, I shucked that off. Like I moved away from that into like just cold, historically informed, objective, biblical hermeneutics, like textual criticism. And I went to that conventional wisdom 
like a mo- and now I'm realizing oh that that actually that's void of the power of the spirit of God and so there's almost like a there's almost like a a circling back around to okay but what world do I live in because God didn't ask us to go backwards as much as we honor and the restoration movement we love the early church we we truly aren't going back to the early church because we don't live in the first century. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not. We are in the 21st century in our own context, and so it's important that we. So I went from being totally informed by my culture and all my theology and all my decisions being shaped more by my news outlets and social media, to going away from all of that, to now needing to come back around and say. Okay, but I'm not just wanting to coldly look at this at arm's length. I need to actually ask the question of what does it mean? I heard another teacher say, um, there's the there's the word we live by, there's the work we're called to, and there's the world we live in. And I loved that framework. Ooh, that's good. Say that again. There's the word we live by. There's the work we're called to, and there's the world we live in. So we have our scriptures, we have the word we live by, and we and we have our mission, the work we're called to, but then both of those things have to find a place in the world that we live in. We have to we have to use that world that word to do that work in the world. And I think that can be so helpful because I think we usually think the world is the only thing that's messed up. And sometimes it's how we understand the work we're called to. And sometimes it's how we understand the word that we're getting wrong. But those three things always have to be in relationship. The the word we live by, the work we're called to, and the world we live in. And and that's what I'm trying to become more and more aware of and steward well in my, in my work and my ministry. There seems to be, in our culture today, a lot of folks running away from the Bible, from the institutional church, uh, maybe rightly so, becoming increasingly suspect of uh, church leaders at times and leadership. Uh, you work with a lot of campus ministry programs and campus ministers. A lot of uh, a lot of people would say they're not anti-Jesus necessarily, but maybe they have uh, really a, a barrier's gone up between them and the church. What advice would you give to our listeners and church leaders about reaching this generation with the gospel? Uh, do we have some reimagining uh, to do as far as the work uh, that we've been called to in this this present world situation we're in? Yeah, those are those are like really good questions, and the questions that I mean that's that's the space I live in, uh, running a campus ministry. So those are near and dear to my heart. They they are they're they're not they're not anti Jesus, and they're not anti Bible. These young people love studying man to study the Bible to. Especially when you're thinking critically about the Bible, not doctrine, that, and that's why that distinction is so. They're not in love with doctrine; they could care less about the church's doctrine. But the Bible as a historical document, oh well, they they'll go to that, and that's a beautiful thing because there's there's power in that inspired document. So they love Jesus, they love the Bible, yeah, and the church has proven itself. I mean, the the institution of the church has proven herself right now to need to be. We're due for for some repentance. We're due for some good confession and some humility, and um, some reimagining. I like that. Yeah, we're we're due for that. We have proven ourselves to be um, unreliable for. We'll have to rest, and that's okay. We can restore that. 
We've done that before. We've been through dark eras in the church before. This isn't the end of the world. Um, but yeah, they're holding us accountable to that. And I, I love this younger generation uh, for doing that. Um, we're going to be better if, if, if we can, with humility, listen to some of that. At the same time, I'm not sure if it's this super big wholesale reimagining uh, I don't know how many of your listeners might be listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, their most recent episode that I heard. Man, they they had this like the last 20, 30 minutes of that episode of some of the best conversation I've heard about the church in a long time. And they were saying, um, and it feels like sometimes uh, you, like there's this huge problem, there's all this destruction, and so you have to respond with this equally big, equally sensational answer. And they were saying, you know, I think the answer is not going to be like this big outlandish rocket science. It's just the simple things we've been called to. Like the simple things that Mm -hmm. Jesus called us to in Acts 2, a passage that we all love in the Restoration Movement so much. um, those, Those are still the simple things that if we just did those things without all the idolatry, without all the dogmatic nonsense, without all the institutional empire building that we're so well, if we just went back to like, just meeting in homes, having meals, showing up for more funerals, more graduation parties, more weddings, more backyard mm-hmm. barbecues, and trusting in the slow but steady, deep work of God. That young people just want something real. That they, they don't mm-hmm. need a smoke machine. They don't need fancy music. They don't. They don't care about any of that stuff. But that that's the kind of reimagining. It's actually not all that complicated. It's just being willing. It's not, it's not complicated. It is a huge challenge because we have definitely got ourselves wound up with some pretty uh, deep idolatry. We've built some, some institutions that we're so worried about surviving and we're making really bad decisions because we're so wound up about survival. And we need to remember that it, it ain't our institution. <laughs> God's mm-hmm. got it. And if we'll remember that, we're going to be okay. And, and the, this younger generation will be ready to help us too. Well, I love that. That's hopeful. And uh, yeah. it's encouraging to hear you say that this generation isn't anti-Jesus, loves the word. Boy, the simplicity of Acts 2, apostles teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer, house to house. Pretty simple. Um, yep. Y- y- you do work with, you're the president and director of Impact Campus Ministries. Before we close this podcast out, People are, are so familiar with your podcast. Tell us a little bit more about that ministry, if you will, and what you're doing and what that's all about. Yeah, Impact Campus Ministries is a campus ministry planting organization, essentially. We're trying to put campus uh, Stone Campbell Restoration uh, Movement Campus Ministries where there aren't any. And so uh, we go to those weird pockets and corners of the country. We're all domestic, so we stay in the United States. And our, our niche is spiritual formation, so we're not wound up about evangelism. We're not, um, we hope evangelism happens as a natural byproduct of our spiritual life together. Um, we're not trying to just convince students to stay in the church. Um, what we're trying to do is teach students how to passionately follow Jesus and um, that spiritual formation, knowing what that looks like, knowing their spiritual practices, knowing how to fast, knowing how to pray, knowing how to memorize their, knowing, knowing what Jesus looks like, knowing how to hear his voice, because um, what they're going to go do is they're going to go run their businesses, and they're going to parent their children, and they're going to lead their churches, and they're going to create good art, and they're going to become engineers, and 
the things they're going to go out to do, non-ministry related, that's actually where the action is. The action is with vocation. And so we're trying to teach our students. This is kind of the new frontier for us. We haven't been doing a great job, but we're going to get better at it because that's our vision. And we have a commitment to teach our students about the holiness and the sanctity of what God's called them to do. Um, they're going to go, they're taking God's creation, they're ordering it and stewarding it, and they're bringing shalom to chaos. And they just need to know that about what they, their job is not a nine to five to get them to the other stuff that matters. Their job is the thing that matters. And, um, and we want them to be mentoring. We'd love for our alumni to become this massive army of mentors that teaches people behind them in the fields that they work in, uh, how to make the world a better place. So uh, that's the whole idea behind impact. Impact the you, impact the world. If we can impact the university, that's how we're going to change the world, at least one of the ways. So that's what we spend our time trying to do. Tell us a little bit about the liturgy that you've developed. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a new, I don't know. I don't, we'll see how this all works. That's a new idea. We're launching this fall. Um, basically, everywhere I've gone, I've met a lot of people, many of them disillusioned. They might not even be in the church anymore. They might or they might be in the church and are barely hanging on, or that like just a myriad of situations. But all they want to do is follow Jesus. Like even what we were just talking about with young people, like they want to follow Jesus. They're just why do I got to join this church? It's all wound up about itself and building its own thing. Like I just want to follow Jesus. And so we're trying to do something that works in the church, outside the church, helps people follow Jesus with others. Like that's that's the idea to get people together um, in community. And, and run after Jesus. And so we're just developing a liturgy. It's something that's worked throughout thousands of years of Christianity, um, a, a little structure of worship. And um, if it's helpful for people, if it's help, we're not trying to start a house church movement. That's not what we're doing. It's not what we're doing. I am not, I am not a movement leader. I refuse to accept that mantle. But if we can create resources and decentralize that and equip other people to lead themselves in their own local churches and their own local fellowships. If we can do that, that then we're, we want to do anything that helps facilitate running after Jesus. We don't want the church to get in the way. We also don't want the church to be the problem. We, we just want to, we just want to help and whatever we can do to facilitate that is great. But we, we are not trying to build a kingdom with it. That is for sure. (laughs) Well, Marty, that, that seems to come through that uh, we're all trying to point people to Jesus yeah. and, and what it is to follow him better and read his word better. I've sure enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you for being with us. And we're going to have you back for our next podcast as well. So I'm going to bring this one to a close. But I want to mention to uh, our listeners some different ways that they might access some of your work. First, of course, there's um, the podcast, and you can go to uh, Bema Discipleship, that's B-E-M-A, discipleship.com, uh, and find the podcast here. You can also find the podcast on uh, various podcast uh, platforms. You can also go to martysolomon.com, and you'll find some good resources there as well. And if you're interested in in what Marty's doing with um, the campus ministry, uh, impacttheu.com impacttheu.com, and you can get more information there as well. Uh, Marty, thank you for being with us. Um, Look forward to having you back next time. Absolutely. It's going to be great. I look forward to that too. All right. Well, thanks so much. Hey, to our listeners, 
We always say unity begins or starts with a cup of coffee or whatever you can get somebody to sit down at a table and drink with you. So uh, go out, find a believer, maybe in one of the other families of churches in our movement or beyond, and start building relationships that can contribute towards greater unity in the body of Christ. Join us again next week. We're going to talk more with Marty Solomon. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.